This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Great to be with you. It's uh, driving down from Louisville. You're just a bit ahead of us on spring. Your, your leaves are out now. Really, really late. <laughs> spring where we are, but it's finally, finally hit, right? So it's good to have nice uh, warmer weather. Uh, I'm getting used to, uh, in the winter, I've been traveling to Florida, so I'm getting used to Florida. I come from Canada, I'm trying to escape the north, right? People always say to me, you're Canadian, you should be used to these things. And I said, yes, but I am a warm-blooded person and I adjust to my environment and I have adjusted away from the cold weather. But All right, well, glad that you're with us. We uh, do have the handouts. Those are roughly the handouts we'll work through and you have that before you and we'll be working through some of the passages of scripture, but... Um, uh, this is, I understand, right, that you're working through uh, this year the doctrine of Scripture, right? So you're looking at this very, very important area of what is Scripture, um, becoming clear as to its nature, and ultimately, I'm assuming its defense and how we rightly handle it, and nothing, nothing more foundational than uh, the doctrine of Scripture, right? So. Just as we begin, you think of a Psalm 1. So if you have your Bibles, you just think this reflects so much of the attitude of uh, what we are to have when we approach Scripture. And this is, of course, the blessed man, blessed man, woman. And ultimately, in the, in the Psalter, we won't spend time on that, but ultimately, this blessed man sees itself ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Right? He's the true blessed one who loved God's word and obeyed it and followed all that it said. But we read in Psalm 1, as we think of scripture, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And a person who does that is like a tree planted by streams of water. So if you're planted by streams of water, you'll certainly the tree will flourish, right? which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers, not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Right? So here's. Reflecting Old Testament perspective, the blessed man who follows the law of the Lord, the word of the Lord, right? And we have even greater incentive to do so because Christ has come and we now have a full Bible, right? He's only dealing with partial Bible. <laughs> but we now have a full Bible, but the, but the doctrine of Scripture is so important. It's, it's our lifeline. Right? And we'll see here why it is necessary just in a moment, but it allows us to know God, right? But even more than that, right, it allows us even have a ground for truth right these are crucial crucial matters scripture is so so important in the reformation we're all uh, we all uh, those who are heirs of the reformation right reformation protestant evangelical right one of the great solas of the reformation uh, which has historic context it stood against roman catholic teaching catholics and protestants have a lot in common yet yet that's a major, major differences we disagree. And one of them is on Scripture. We all believe that Scripture is God's Word, yet we add 
this alone in front of it. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. We'll come back and we'll, in our time this morning, define that more carefully. It doesn't mean that nothing that we have to appeal to outside the Bible and there's no other kinds of lesser authorities and so on. Well, there are. But Scripture in the end is final. Right? Scripture in the end is alone in the sense that there's nothing higher than we can appeal to and we'll see why that's the case it's God's word right so it settles all matters all matters on which it speaks so that uh, this is such a crucial part of our heritage and true to the Bible itself right and we'll see why that is so all of our doctrines right so this is the doctrine of scripture but scripture is foundational as a doctrine because every other doctrine goes back to scripture <laughs> so that why do we believe that God is the God he is right that he's triune and perfect and holy and just well we could say well we look at creation yes but it's ultimately because scripture says so why do we believe that there is a life after death well because scripture says so we don't just listen to those who say have a near-death experience come back and say well let me tell you about that uh, no we say scripture says so we need something more authoritative than that why do we believe that by faith alone in Christ alone that we stand justified before God sometimes that's not because we feel it is <laughs> because it is true based upon what God has said about what the Lord Jesus has done 2,000 years ago and what it means to be right with him by receiving him in repentance and faith and so on. I mean, all these things are grounded in Scripture, right? The little children's hymn, Jesus loves me, this I know. Of course, the know there is very important, right? How do you know Jesus loves you? How do you know pretty much anything that is sure and certain is because the Bible tells me so. Now this is where, <laughs> when we take this out into the streets, right? I'm sure you've experienced this. We as Christians take everything back to God's word. And as we're witnessing to someone, they say, that's your problem. <laughs> uh, you are naive. You are like a child, right? You, you believe the Bible and you take everything back there. Use your reason. Use your own thinking. Go by your own views of the world and so on. Well, we'll see. We'll come back to that point just in a moment. Uh, that doesn't help very much, right? We need a sure foundation, not just a finite foundation. We need God to be there. We need God to speak. This is getting at the notion of, of necessity. But these areas are crucial, right? The doctrine of Scripture is foundational, right? Often when we uh, teach theology, when I teach theology, there's always a debate, what doctrine do you start with first? Do you start with God first, or do you start with Scripture first? Most of our theologies start with Scripture first because it's foundational. How would we know God apart from his word? Now, we'll see throughout these sessions uh, today is those two doctrines are totally tied together. <laughs> and that's true of most things in theology. It's like a web. You try to unravel it you get into big trouble right it all fits together weaves together you can't have our view of scripture without our view of God and our view of God leads us to scripture right? 
So these two go hand in hand. But often, Scripture is presented first in terms of the teaching of theology. It's the foundation to everything we say. Now, I have on your introductory comments as well, there is when we speak of the doctrine of Scripture, we often speak of its attributes, and that's what you have in terms of even the heading, the attributes of Scripture. This is... This, this is, you know, through the history of the church, this has been spoken of this way, particularly tied to the Reformation. There's often four attributes that people speak of in terms of Scripture, right? Scripture is necessary. Scripture is authoritative. And then I've tied that to the doctrine of inspiration. We'll look at next, we'll look at necessity first, authority, inspiration. Scripture is enough, meaning sufficient. And that really ties into the notion of Scripture alone, right? And then Scripture is clear, or if you want to have the fancy term, and I understand that Rick Holland covered clarity, but if you want to speak of it the way it's usually spoken of, it's perspicuity, but you don't stand in front of somebody when you say that, because eventually, eventually you are going to spit at them, right? <laughs> Try to say perspicuity without spitting at them, right? So often we just say clear. These four areas are crucial. Scripture is necessary. Scripture is authoritative. Scripture is sufficient. Scripture is clear. And then also related to that are spin-off areas, right? So its authority and inspiration gets tied to its infallibility. It will not fail. And then tied to that is its inerrancy. Right? So inerrancy is often the summary word we use, but that's really tied to simply biblical authority. And then we, in Scripture, talk about which books are Scripture. Right? That's the canon. Right? Crucial. There's debate on that. Roman Catholics have the Apocrypha. We don't. And for good reason. Right? But uh, there are certain books that are Scripture and so on. And then we also speak about the interpretation of Scripture. It's not just to talk about the doctrine. We have to say, well, the doctrine helps us interpret it as well. Rightly handle it. And then also its defense. So what we want to look at this morning, we'll leave some of these other areas for future uh, sessions. You've already looked at clarity, perspicuity. We're going to go back and look at three of those four attributes, necessity, authority, in particular, I'm going to tie authority to the doctrine of inspiration. I think sometimes uh, this is misunderstood. Right? Even the term inspiration is very confusing to people in common usage. We mean something very, very, very specific by that, and that's what grounds biblical authority. And then ultimately, it's sufficiency, which is a very, very important. If Scripture is enough, in what ways is it enough? <laughs> Does it help you when you need to change your oil? Right? Does it help you when you need to figure out uh, nuclear physics? Right? So you're doing mechanical engineering, as my one son did. Our son did, and uh, would he turn to the Bible for mechanical engineering? Right? Well, is it sufficient then, right? So what does sufficiency mean? Right? These are crucial, crucial matters. They also show up in other areas, right? Uh, should we listen to certain psychological theories? Should we listen to certain scientific theories? How does that fit with Scripture and so on, right? So sufficiency is a very, very, very important area, and often... Today, it's, it's undermined, right? We believe in the authority of the Bible, but really, it doesn't function for us as authoritative, right? And so, all of these areas have to be thought carefully uh, together, right? So, let's first look at necessity. In some sense, necessity is foundational 
to even our laying out the doctrine of Scripture. It's really the first thing we need to say to emphasize the importance of Scripture. Right? So why is Scripture necessary? And in what areas ultimately is it necessary? Well, what I want to do is to unpack here just simply two reasons. Why is Scripture necessary? First, right, and this should be more common to us, right? Scripture is necessary because without it, we cannot know God truly. Right? Now, truly is being emphasized in such a way that not just know God in the sense of my personal opinions of God, right? Not just know God in the sense of, oh, I've got some thoughts about God, let me share them with you. But know God truly in the sense that it really is what we say objectively true. Objective is in contrast to subjective. Subjective is just your personal opinion. Objective is true regardless of what you think. <laughs> it's true to reality. It's true to that which is outside of you. Well, without scripture, we wouldn't be able to know God in this true, objective, authoritative way. We'd be left simply to guesses, speculation maybe some of those guests would be right but we would never be able to know truly right? and then the second area is we're going to expand it to not just you know us in this room where we say well we need scripture to know God and then others will say well who cares about knowing God <laughs> we want to expand it to really this is a very 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 important apologetic issue right? the truth of the matter is right, without scripture we would not know anything truly, or at least have the grounds to think that there's something such as objective truth. Now that issue is where our whole society is debating. Right? And so what we have to say with necessity of scripture isn't just for us in the church, but we want to take the message of the necessity of scripture and God speaking and the source and standard of truth and his word is where we find that truth right to the world right and say without the God of the Bible without his spoken revelation you really have no grounds for objective truth right now that has to be unpacked a little bit and we'll come back to that but those those areas and then we'll finish by looking at Hebrews chapter 1 which gives us a beautiful statement of God who is there and the God who speaks and that lays out necessity, and then next session we'll look at its authority. God has spoken, but what kind of authority does it have? And then ultimately it's, its sufficiency. Let's first think about this first area. Without Scripture, right, why it's necessary is that without it, we would not know the God of the Bible truly. And I've already sort of unpacked a little bit of that true sense, right, objectively, not just our personal opinions, but something that is we can bank on that is true and real and and uh, uh, universally the case right now why is this well just think right about who the God of the Bible is <laughs> and we could spend lots of time looking at this right right God is right the eternal one God is and I have even on some of your sheets the creator versus us the creature right God is the eternal one I have here a sovereign one the personal God the and then you think of the triune God, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
God who's always, always existed. God who is complete within himself. God who is holy and just and righteous. How would you know that? Other than, right, he now talks to us and says, this is who I am. In scripture and also in theology, we use this term incomprehensible. Right? And the truth of the matter is, right, God in himself, God who he is, is incomprehensible apart from him saying, this is who I am. If you turn to First uh, Corinthians 2, there's a principle here that applies not only to humans, but also applies more significantly to God. Right? So 1 Corinthians 2, really the section is verses 6 through 13. The Apostle Paul is speaking about the wisdom and the power of the cross and how our world, Greeks, Jews, view it as foolishness. But those whom God has called, it is the power of God, it is the wisdom of God, and so on. And then in verse 6 of chapter 2, 1 Corinthians, he says, We don't speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but the wisdom of the not, or the wisdom of this age, or of the rulers of this age, we're coming to nothing. No, we speak God's mysteries. We speak God's revelation, right? So he speaks this in terms of God's revelation of himself. And then he says in um, verse 9, quoting from Isaiah 64, No eye has seen, no ears heard, no mind is conceived. But God has prepared for those who love him, but God has revealed it to us by his spirit, right? So here's a revelation. God has spoken to us. He's revealed himself to us. And then here's the principle that's here. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God, right? So the Holy Spirit is God himself, right? Third person of the Godhead. He is able to know himself perfectly. <laughs> he is he is God. And he searches the deep things and is then able to disclose them to us, to make itself known to us. And then he says in verse 11, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? There's the human principle. If we are to get to know one another, right? You could look at people's actions. <laughs> you can see what they do. You can see where they go. You can see what their behavior is, you know, whether they go to... Uh, you know, what restaurant they go to in the morning or whether they get coffee or tea or, I mean, you can, you can observe things about people's behavior, right? In some sense, right, uh, God obviously has made a world, uh, we call that natural revelation, where we can say, well, look at, look at the world he's made. That must mean that he has power. and That must mean that he is wise and all of these things. And, of course, there's a place for that. Uh, Psalm 19, for instance, will say the heavens declare the glory of God. God has revealed himself in creation, right? And Romans 1 will make very clear that we are accountable for what we know. There's, it's impressed upon our conscience. We have this intuitive sense that God is there. We look at the world. We look at ourselves and say we're not accidents. God has made us. He's designed us. Our conscience bears witness even to moral demands upon us. But... That would never be enough, right? To know God in all of glory and all of his beauty, right? he would have to make himself known to us. And that's true at the human level too. We could observe human behavior, but ultimately to know someone, there needs to be communication. This is what happens in marriage, doesn't it? <laughs> 
right? The first thing you learn in marriage counseling, right, is, uh, you know, if, before you get married is you got to talk to one another, right? You got to communicate one another. You've got to open yourself up. You've got to give what you're thinking. I can't just sort of look at you and make guesses, right? Talk to me. Right? Talk to me. Reveal yourself to me. What are you, what, what, are you, what do you desire? What are your goals? What are your plans? What are you thinking, right? Well, how much that's true at a human level, how much more so for God, right? For who among men knows the thoughts of man except the man's spirit? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God, right? Now, this is why revelation is necessary, why scripture is necessary, right? Yes, and I have that on your notes here. Revelation is found in nature. Revelation to nature is very, 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 very important. In fact, we'll say that it goes hand in hand with his word revelation. But his word revelation, his spoken revelation, gives us more. Right? It gives us God's eternal plan. Right? It gives us his promises. You're not going to find his promises by looking up at the stars. Now, some try to find certain things in the human body that give you pictures of the cross, and you know, people do all kinds of crazy things, right? But ultimately, this is where I have on your notes here, is God must take the initiative to talk to us, to disclose what he's thinking, right? to disclose his purposes. This is what he's, Paul's speaking about, the apostle, when he says, we are the ones who proclaim God's mysteries. Mysteries is, is a revelation sense. God has planned all things, but we would never know that plan unless he communicates to us, creates a world, speaks to us. He must not only do his mighty actions. This is what I mean by word act. He must not only do his mighty actions. Creation is a mighty action, but he must also give us an interpretation of those actions, a word. He must describe to us, this is what it means, right? Uh, he does mighty actions even in history, right? He does mighty miracles. When he does an exodus, he doesn't just let the nation of Israel say, hmm, that's an amazing event. He tells them, this is what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm redeeming you from Egypt. This act of exodus describes not only as, as you know, you see it before you, but then he explains why he did it, right? Tied to his covenant promises. Think of the coming of the Lord Jesus, right? You couldn't have greater actions of God, the incarnation, the life, death, resurrection of Christ. But what do they mean? Jesus is risen from the dead. Is that the same as Lazarus's resurrection? Uh, how does the resurrection show that Jesus is who he is and that he's the judge of the world and the savior of the world? Well, you need that explained to you. You need to have a plan of God unfolded uh, to you. We need God to speak to us, right? God in himself, like, <laughs> You look at the world you would never know the incomprehensible God right God is and I have these terms here archetype right God is the original archetype just simply means the beginning the original we are just finite right we in our finitude we know very little right in some sense our world is right at this point when our world cuts themselves off from God all you're left with is finite perspectives well no wonder you don't have a ground for truth Right? How could you ever have a ground for truth if it's just us pooling our ignorance in this room, right? Or, more positively, pooling our knowledge, right? But even then, how do you know it's what you know? I mean, there's more to learn. There's more to understand. There's more. How do you know that unless there is a universal viewpoint? 
How do you know unless there is a viewpoint that understands everything? Well, we, it's not us. We need God to be that, and we need God to make himself known to us, right? Think of Isaiah 55, a very, very famous uh, passage. So God says to the nation of Israel in this context, in terms of his thoughts, his plans, his purposes, for my thoughts, Isaiah 55, 8, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my, your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts, <laughs> your thoughts, right? Well, for if his ways are higher, if his thoughts are higher, we need him to make himself known to us, right? Romans 11, I have on your sheet there. That's the famous doxology of the Apostle Paul, where, now we could turn over to there, Romans 11, where it's at the end of a section where the Apostle Paul is laying out amazing truths in history right so he's speaking about the future he's speaking about uh, how many a jewish person will come to faith and there's lots of debates on these passages but it seems to be saying that uh, god is not finished with the jewish people he's going to bring many of them to saving faith and bring them into the church and he lays all of that out how would he ever know that <laughs> well he knows it because god has revealed it and so we finish in Romans 11 with, after all of that revelation he lays out for us, he says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom of the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. Well, if his judgments are unsearchable, right, he would have to tell us what they are. We would never be able to simply, Paul would never be able to say, well, here's all what's going to happen in history. He doesn't know, but God does, right? And God discloses of that. Who has known the mind of the Lord, he says in verse 34. Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him for from him and through him and to him are all things. Him be glory forever and amen. This doxology falls on the heels of God's amazing plan that Paul has laid out, but he only knows that plan of the God incomprehensible because God has made himself known to us, right? When we think of God's knowledge, we must, and I have on here, God's knowledge is not just a bit more than ours. That would be quantitative, right? So if God knows quantitatively more than us. He just knows more facts than us. He knows more data than us. Well, no, God's knowledge is also, certainly it's quantitatively more, right? But it's qualitatively more, right? God's thoughts create reality. None of us do that, right? God's thoughts are the very standard of what is true and right and good and so on. Uh, you know, if you've ever, I'm sure you've had the experience, right? When you were a little child, go off to kindergarten or pre-K or whatever they have now. They go earlier and earlier, pre-pre-K and everything. But you go off to kindergarten, when I went off to kindergarten, right? You know, you're, you're, first of all, you're tiny, and you look up to adults, and you think they're giants, right? And then you, uh, as you go through grade school and high school and even university and so on, even, even seminary, right? So you, you think the teachers are so smart, right? They know everything. Oh, they're so brilliant. I remember in seminary having professors, they think, man, how did they learn all that stuff? And then as you read a bit more, <laughs> you say, oh. They took it from that guy's book. 
or they got that thought over here or and the more you learn the more the quantitative amount of your knowledge grows those people sort of are reduced in stature a bit right just as when you grow taller and you can stand eye to eye with your parents you realize they were giants but they're really not giants right uh, the same is with knowledge well that will never be the case with God <laughs> for all eternity we will learn and we will never ever ever even have a drop in the bucket of what God knows right you know some people think well you know, if I'm there a million years, I'm going to be bored after that. Don't think so. <laughs> Just the knowledge of God and all of what we may be doing, but even the knowledge of God, it'll never, ever, ever be exhausted. Right? Even the revelation that God gives of himself to us is not exhaustive. Right? It's enough for us. But God could have said much more. In fact, much of what he says to us was a John Calvin who said he just speaks as... Um, He's talking to a baby. He gives baby talk. <laughs> uh, this is what is known as accommodation. Accommodation doesn't mean it's error. It just simply means, you know, if Einstein were uh, talking to a five-year-old about the theory of relativity, he would have to speak to that child as a child, wouldn't he? Well, in many ways, Scripture is brilliant, profound, and true, but it's still God speaking baby talk to us. Right? And so we have to remember this. God must, of necessity, make himself known to us and then this last area I have here is this is true from the beginning as well it's very important to see this right so if you go back to Genesis 2 we should not think that God's revelation of himself particularly scripture only is due to sin right a lot of people think that right so apart from sin we, we would look at the creation and we would know God we do know God from creation that's true but even before sin ever entered the world, right, God always had talked to us. God always had to tell, in the kid's case, it's Adam. And we read this in Genesis 2 where God puts him, verse 15, the Lord God puts him in the Garden of Eden to work it, to take care of it. And the Lord commanded him. That's speech. Right? He's got to talk to him. He doesn't just say, hey, you go figure it out. Now, on some things, he does. Um, name the animals. Uh, he'd have to do science to do that. Uh, expand the borders of Eden. Be a gardener. So on, right? But there's certain things about this case, God's command. What does God want from Adam? Well, God has to talk to him. God has to make himself known to him. And this is true even before sin enters the world. So that in a Christian view, right? Yes, we know God from creation. But creation, the knowledge of God in nature and creation and so on is never, ever, ever, ever independent of his word. And of course, that word comes to us first, you know, in the sense of spoken word through the prophets and so on, but, but a written word, scripture, right? This is why as Christians, right, our knowledge of God, yes, comes from the world. Yes, no doubt. But it comes from Scripture. And Scripture, because it's a specific word revelation, right? And especially when it interprets the world specifically, has authority, right? It, it, it's final. We use that to say, ah, this is the truth. God has made himself known to us, right? So that's just simply the first area, right? I mean, apart from God disclosing himself, given the kind of God he is, right? 
we would never know his plans in a true way. You'd say, well, I think God's doing this. Yeah, but how would you know? Uh, here are his promises. Here's what he wants from you. Uh, here's who you are. Right? Even think of that, right? Who are we? Well, we're creatures made in God's image, God's likeness, and so on. What are we for? What are we here for? Right? Well, you can try to figure it out, and science has tried to do that independent of God. But in the end, right, it's not grounded. It's not true. It's not objective. We don't know. It may be a good guess. But we need God to disclose himself to us. And that's been the case from the very, very, very beginning, right? But it's just not in this area alone, right? Let's pick up the second area here of our world, right? And this is where, you know, some people will say, well, yeah, it's fine to have, you know, the Bible for and God's word revelation and God's speech for the knowledge of God. But, you know, we, we have our science. We have our biology, we have our disciplines, and we have our psychology and so on. We don't, we don't, we don't need the Word of God for that. Well, not so fast. Right? So here I say Scripture is also necessary to have a proper foundation or ground uh, for, and then I've used these terms, right? Truth, truth has to be defined, right? Not subjective but ultimately in terms of something objective, something that's universal. That universal notion is tied to objective truth, right? It's true for everybody. <laughs> it's not just true for our culture or just us in our group. It's true universally. Well, once it's true universally, it has to be objective, right? Well, this is what our society is struggling over, right? And I give you a few people's names here. You may have heard some of them and that, but here we, we live in a day where the battle of the day, the issue of the day. There's lots of issues out there, right? Um, issues on Twitter and, and various social media. And now Elon Musk is buying Twitter and, and then Facebook and all these things. All these issues, right? But the heart of all the debates and all the issues and all the you know, social wars and you know, debates on government and CRT and all these things, right? underneath it all is, is there something that is true? Is there an objective ground, right? Is there a base to say, this is true and this is not? This is right and this is wrong. Really, think of the moral realm is probably the easiest way to say it, right? Is morality simply in the eye of the beholder? Is it in our day, and there's been a long reason for the history of this, right? Is it simply my own construction of the world? Right? Are we living a whole society that basically has a view of truth, and you have to put it in quotes here, it's not really objectively true, but it's a view of truth that we ourselves, either as individuals or maybe our group, construct. Right? We become the ones who make it true. Now, there's a long history to this. I give you some of the people's names to this. This is in total contrast to the biblical view, and I have that as the Reformation view. The Reformation view starts with God, as the source and standard of truth, grounding then our ability to know things that are true. But in the Enlightenment, which goes back to the 1600s, and then you particularly tie it to the, the, the Darwinian view. Right? Right? The Darwinian view ultimately is this world is not governed by a sovereign, all-knowing, truthful God. It's ultimately chance and randomness. Right? It's impersonal processes. Right? So you have out of that Darwin 
You have Marx, you have Freud. Friedrich Nietzsche proclaimed the death of God, but there was an implication of that. Once God dies, in the sense of the Christian God and his significance, what happens? Truth dies. Right? Eventually it becomes simply your perspective. Right? And that's what we're facing when we deal with such things as critical theory and um, you know, intersectionality and you know, me picking who I am and uh, my own, own identity and all of these kind of issues uh, and so on. Right? And the assumption behind our current thought today, right? So there's all kinds of different viewpoints, but in the end, all of them have something in common, namely, there's no objective standard, right? What is true, right? And in that context, right, it's not just God must make himself known so that we know him truly. We also need an objective standard to know anything that's true, right? Even you say, well, what about those STEM disciplines? <laughs> well, even the STEM disciplines have come under attack, haven't they? Right? Last year, people were debating whether 2 plus 2 is 5. Right? And you say, that's crazy. Right? Well, I mean, if you start taking their viewpoints consistently, there is no ground. Now, we know it's false. Why? But because God is there. <laughs> because God created a world. Because God spoke to us, right? It's crazy because the universe, thankfully, is not what they say it is, right? This is a God-created universe, designed universe, and so on, right? So the question of our day is whether there is such a thing as a God's eye viewpoint. God's eye viewpoint meaning a total perspective. The only way that you can have truth of morality and of philosophy and of whether a religious viewpoint is true is whether there's a universal view that says this is true. In our society, it says that's not possible, right? So turn to Hebrews 1. We'll conclude with this passage where it beautifully summarizes, right, some sense the entire Christian position. What's the answer to a loss of truth and a loss of a universal perspective and the loss of a ground for what's right and good and true. And with that, of course, the battles of our day of the loss of human dignity and the, and the loss of moral values so we don't know what humans are and how we treat them and, and, and so on and so on and so on, right? Well, the answer is, ultimately, I have here, and I take this from a man who lived in the you know, 19th, 20th century but died in 1984, Francis Schaeffer. And uh, he still, his books are still worth reading. Um, but he had two books, The God Who Is There, and He Is There, and He Is Not Silent. Those are great titles. Right? And the answer the Bible gives is the reason that we can have a basis for truth and we can then know God truly is because, first of all, he's there. <laughs> and he's not just there of any old God. He's the triune God, right? That makes all the difference. We won't spend time developing our doctrine of God. But you don't just have to have just a concept of God for this. You know, Islam has a view of God and other monotheistic conceptions and so on, but you need a specific God, a specific God who actually knows all things, a God who can plan all things, a God who is personal, right? Well, <clears throat> um, you don't have time to develop that, but the only place you find that is in the Bible, right? A triune God who's fully personal, who has full knowledge of himself, who plans all things, knows all things. Only ground for a true objective universal viewpoint is the God of Scripture. Right? 
And it's not just that he has to be there, but he must also speak to us, right? He must then say, here's my plan, right? First Corinthians 2. Here's what I'm thinking. Here's my revelation and, and so on. And this is where the author of Hebrews begins as he speaks to these Christians who are going through incredible trials. We know from this book that these Christians are in some sense facing um, persecution from out, outside. They're, they're losing their homes, jobs, potentially even their lives. And unfortunately, they seem to be compromising the gospel. <laughs> they seem to be wanting to go back to, say, Old Testament ways. But the author of Hebrews, whoever it is, it's anonymous. He's anonymous or she, or, or I'm sure it's a he. But anonymous, right, by inspiration, writes, right, starts off. No greetings, nothing. Simply starts off by saying, God spoke, right? In the past, God spoke to our forefathers, to the prophets, many times and in various ways. There's, God is there, and God has made himself known, right? He begins this way because he wants to remind them, as they are struggling, your only hope in life and in death, your only surety, the only ground that you can have to know God, his promises, to govern your life, is that God has made himself known to you. And he's made himself known, he now refers to the Old Testament era, to our forefathers, the prophets. He even speaks of its repetitious nature, right? Many times, it happened over a whole period of time, and in all kinds of diverse ways. We'll come back to that next time when we talk about modes, right? Dreams and visions and, and uh, through writings and so on, all kinds of different ways. But... Where he's going with this is God has not only spoken in the past, and that's, that's authoritative, through the prophets is authoritative, but he's brought all of God's speech to pass in Christ. <laughs> and there's where the whole New Testament comes in with the revelation of Christ. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And why would you think that the prophets give you and, and why would you think, even more so, that the Son of God sums up all those prophetic truths? That's really the idea here, right? Is that the prophets speak truly, but they speak in a fragmentary way. They ultimately anticipate, and this is what the Old Testament's doing, right? They ultimately anticipate the coming of Christ who brings all of the revelation of God to finality. <laughs> you really have it all summed up in Him. Now, why would that be the case? Because... He's God the Son, right? And he goes on to describe him as the heir of all things, the creator of the universe. <laughs> now, if you're the creator of the universe, do you think you know what you're talking about? Right? Yes. Right? Uh, he is the creator of the universe, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. That's another way of saying he is deity. Here we're unpacking, in some sense, the Son's relationship to God, particularly the Father. I mean, this is now triune. But here you have a God, uh, the Son who is God, right? Creator, radiance, exact representation of his being. He's also the sustainer of all things. So here you have one who creates, sustains, who rules, who's enacting his entire plan. Indeed, the triune God enacts his entire plan. Is there a ground for truth? Absolutely. The creator has spoken. <laughs> the creator has made himself known. 
the Son of God has even taken on our humanity and stood among us. John will say that in Christ, right, we have the full revelation of the Father, and he, Jesus can even say that's why he says famously in John 14, 6, right, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life, right? What's that saying, right? There's no way to God apart from me. There's no truth, ultimately, that doesn't come through me. The prophets all come through me. And there's no life apart from me. Well, this is the basis for, right, a biblical view of truth, and it also unpacks why it's necessary for God to speak, because apart from his speech, we would really not know him truly. I mean, how would we even know the Son, and the Father, Son, and Spirit, and all of that he is, and all of his plans, and all of his glory, unless he takes the initiative, and even takes the initiative so much so, the Son of God comes and takes on our humanity and stands in front of us, right, and says, I say unto you, right? uh, There's the basis for truth, right? And we would not be able to really have a ground. I have on the bottom of your notes the transcendental condition. That's a fancy way of saying you don't even have the grounding to an objective view of truth, morality, and so on, apart from God, his plan, his creation, his making himself known, all of that's necessary to say, yes, there is a universal view. It's not my view. I didn't make it up. <laughs> God uh, made himself known to us, right? He's the source. He's the standard. He's all of this, right? That is so, so crucial, right? So this is why Christian theology at its heart takes everything back to Scripture, right? This is why... God's word, right? And yes, oh yes, we've said you can find his, his revelation in creation, but I'm thinking supremely here of his, of his spoken word, his written word, uh, ultimately the word that comes in Christ that is written about in terms of the New Testament, scripture itself, right? Apart from that, we have no foundation to what we believe, what we think, what we say. We're just left with our guesses. Uh, we can't make sense even of ourselves. And that's the kind of confusion our world's in. So when someone says to you, yeah, you, you Christians, the Bible says so. That's what you keep saying. You keep quoting me that Bible. <laughs> that's what uh, Billy Graham, at least, you know, he had a number of faults, but uh, the Lord used him and he always would say, the Bible says so. <laughs> well, he was right on that, right? Uh, so Billy Graham would always go back to, the Bible says so, right? When people say, oh, that's your problem. We say, no, it's not our problem ultimately our strength right? if all I have is my opinion <laughs> we're just in a mess right uh, and you can see that around us right? yet thankfully God is there not just any old God triune God right uh, he has not just remained silent he, he didn't even have to create a world but he chose to create the world he chose to disclose himself in that world and more significantly he chose to give us promises Commands, word revelation, covenants. Uh, just think of all that we have because God has chosen to share himself with us by revelation. That's what we mean by necessity, right? We need in our theories of knowledge, in our theories of the foundation for our theology, the foundation for everything we say, we have to go back to God's word, right? And that's why Psalm 1, the blessed man, right? 
Right? The blessed man is the one who is like a tree that doesn't topple over. If you don't build on the word of God and think of you know Matthew 7 where Jesus then speaks of building on him as the foundation because all the word is centered in him. Right? right? You either build on a rock or you build on quicksand. And quicksand right, is no place to build. Right? Uh, you want a rock, a sure foundation. That's what scripture gives to us so this is foundational the necessity of God making himself known the necessity of not only him being there but making himself known to us that is where we must start now next session what we'll do we'll take a break but next session we'll then pick up and you know sort of say okay God must speak to us well what kind of authority does it have <laughs> what is the scripture right so it's authority what do we mean by the inspiration of the Bible right and scripture gives us you know, clear answers on this and the Bible will testify to itself of its very high authority <laughs> right and it will say ultimately these human words are the words of God right and that will be very important in terms of our practice in life to then say well what has God said and how do I obey it and so on so all right let's finish there right and then You've been listening to a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Cornerstone U exists to have our minds renewed by the Word of God, to see who God is, and to live in light of His Word and Gospel. To find out more about previous Cornerstone U classes, visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com forward slash cornerstone U.